morning. Welcome to this time of worship. Before we start, let me just remind you that when this service is over, you can join in a coffee time online, and hopefully you've received an email giving you the link so that you can join in with that. I encourage you to do that. And then we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m., again online, to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel, this time the parable of the tenants. And again, I hope you can join us for that. And then a little bit of advance notice. Next week, we are beginning to look together at the book of Ruth. This will be our series during Advent. And as we'll see, the book of Ruth has great relevance for Advent. It's also a companion to the book of Judges, which we'll be finishing this morning. So I encourage you to read ahead during the week in preparation for next Sunday. That's all I need to uh, mention by way of introduction. So let's begin our time of worship with prayer. Lord God, we are so glad that you are a speaking God. You are the God who communicates. We thank you that we can read your written word and find as we read that it's a living word. As we read the letters and poems and the historical accounts of the Bible, we are hearing you speak. And this morning, as we listen to Scripture, will you help us to really hear? Help us hear the voice of the living God, challenging us, warning us, leading us away from the darkness of sin and death, leading us towards life and hope and peace in Jesus Christ. Will you help us this morning to see the true ugliness of sin? Help us to see the true madness of trying to rule our own lives. Will you show us too the wisdom and freedom that come from living under your authority? We want to be people who live in your light. And we want to shine your light into the darkness around us. And so we come this morning with expectation that this will not just be another hour in our week. We ask you to make this time a significant hour for all of us. A time when we see things as they really are. A time when our thoughts and our outlook becomes more like yours. Amen. Our first song is a prayer that not only we ourselves, but that those around us and people all over the world would come to praise the name of our Lord and Savior. May the peoples praise you.
In a few moments, we'll be hearing about a husband who wasn't much of a husband and a wife who was not treated as a wife. But before that, we're going to see what a husband should be and how a wife should be treated. We see that by looking at Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to read from Ephesians 5, verse 25, down to verse 33. Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Those words about Jesus help us understand the next song, which says, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds.
This morning we come to the end of the book of Judges. It's a book that started out so hopefully. In chapter 1, we heard how the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, had entered the promised land of Canaan. Now Joshua was dead, and there was still plenty to do if the people were to claim the inheritance God had for them, but the Lord was with them. It would be hard but if they were committed to the task and committed to the Lord, they would claim their inheritance. But as the book went on, it became clear, rather than driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites preferred to become like the Canaanites. But what happened was, instead of embracing the Israelites, the Canaanites oppressed and enslaved them. In His great mercy, the Lord sent a series of deliverers referred to as judges. We heard about 12 of them. But the deliverance they brought was always temporary. And the reason it was temporary was down to the state of the Israelites' hearts. And the final section of the book gives us insight into the typical Israelite heart. Chapter 17 to 21 are a distinct section at the end of the book, and they begin and end with this statement. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That statement occurs at the beginning of chapter 17 and the end of chapter 21. So it wraps around everything we read in these final chapters. This statement means we do not have to guess what these chapters are about. 
The writer of Judges wants us to read these chapters as an insight into how things go when everyone does what is right in their own eyes instead of what is right in the eyes of the Lord. These chapters are a long, hard look at how low things go when human beings decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong, instead of accepting what their Creator tells them is right and wrong. But ultimately, the purpose of these chapters is not to lead us to despair. It's to show us we need God's anointed King. Only God's King can lead us out of the misery of trying to make our own way in life into the freedom and blessing of living God's way. Last week, we started to look at this section. In chapter 17 and 18, we saw several people trying to worship God as they saw fit. And we saw a whole Israelite tribe looking for peace and security as they saw fit. And the results were disappointing for all of them. And I have to give you fair warning. As we look this morning at chapters 19 to 21, we are going to see some unpleasant and disturbing things. But as hard as it is for us to look at these things, it's important that we do look at them because they show us a timeless truth. When human beings live according to what is right in their own eyes, everyone suffers. And the powerless and vulnerable suffer most. When human beings put themselves in God's place, the result is not freedom and fun. It's a mess. A mess where everyone suffers and the powerless and vulnerable suffer most. Here's what to look out for in our passage as we read it. It begins with one woman being abused. It ends... So I'm going to read chapter 19, and then part of chapter 20. Then in the middle of chapter 20, we'll come to a long and detailed description of three battles. Rather than read that description, I will try to summarize it briefly, and then we'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 21 and read to the end. So if you could turn to Judges 19, it will be helpful if you're able to follow along beginning at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. 
His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat. Then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the woman's father said, Please, stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now, look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her 
and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance, because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. All the men rose up together as one, saying, None of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take men, ten men out of every hundred from all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred from a thousand, and a thousand from ten thousand, to get provisions for the army. Then, when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 men, swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. 
the Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. From this point until the end of the chapter, we have a detailed description of three battles between the tribe of Benjamin and the other 11 tribes. In the first two battles, the Benjamites inflict heavy casualties on the much larger Israelite army. But in the third and final battle, the Israelites change their tactics and most of the Benjamites are killed. Only 600 men of Benjamin escape and they hide in the desert. Apparently, they are the only surviving remnant of the tribe. And keeping that in mind, let's now pick up our reading at the beginning of chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. The man of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today, one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give any of them our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So, the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you're to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They find among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Rimon. So the Benjamites returned at the time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough. For all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, 
There is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Labona. So, they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Do us the favor of helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is God's word. And here's how it divides up. In chapter 19, we are shown an outrageous thing. In chapter 20, we find imperfect justice. And in chapter 21, we are shown an outrageous solution to a new problem. First, in chapter 19, an outrageous thing. When we first start reading chapter 19, we might think we've stumbled into some kind of light-hearted family sitcom, something like Everybody Loves Raymond, a squabbling husband and wife with the obligatory daft father-in-law. On the face of it, we have a married couple who fall out, she goes home to her parents, the husband comes to get her back. And he has to endure much more of his father-in-law's company than he'd like. Every time he tries to leave, his jolly host insists that he stay for one more feast. But if we look a little closer, things are a bit more sinister than that. First of all, chapter 19, verse 1, tells us the husband is a Levite. And we've already met one Levite in chapters 17 and 18, and he was not very impressive. He was a priest for hire to the highest bidder. So straight away we wonder what this Levite will be like. And in fact, we discover he's not actually a husband at all. The woman is his concubine. She's a second-class wife. This man is happy to have her around, but he's not willing to fully commit to her. She does not have the rights of a true wife. And verse 2 says she was unfaithful to him. That might mean she was sexually unfaithful, but the context suggests that is not what it means. Because what she actually does is go back to her parents' house. That seems to be the extent of her unfaithfulness. She didn't stay with the Levite. Then, four months later, 
when the Levite decides to go and persuade her to return, he spends the time partying with the woman's dad. Verses 6 and verse 8 tell us the two of them ate and drank together, meaning the Levite and the girl's father. She apparently is not included in the nice time the men are having. And if we wonder whether that's just a cultural thing, it's not. It's our first clue as to how things go when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I say that because back in chapter 1 of this book, we were given a little picture of how things go when people do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. In chapter 1, we were introduced to a lady called Aksa. She was the daughter of Caleb, and she was married to Othniel. Both those men were faithful to the Lord. Now, the Bible is never embarrassed to say that men have the God-given responsibility to take the lead in family life. And in chapter 1, we saw Caleb and Othniel doing that. They are not weak and wobbly men. They were both renowned warriors. They were leaders. But what we saw was Aksa was not crushed or silenced by those men in her life. She flourished. She was fully involved in the decision-making of family life. We heard her speaking for herself. We saw her taking the initiative confidently and respectfully. And for their part, Caleb and Othniel responded to her with respect and generosity. I believe that little incident was recorded at the start of the book to show us how male-female relations are intended to be. How they can be when men and women are concerned to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And remembering what we saw in chapter 1 opens our eyes to what is wrong here in chapter 19. Here, we've been told everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And this woman is not treated with respect or generosity by her father and husband. And the evidence for that just piles up in what comes next. When the Levite finally gets away from his clingy father-in-law, the journey home is too long for them to manage in one day. So the Levite's servants suggest they stop over at a city called Jebus. Jebus is better known to us as Jerusalem. But at this time, it was a Canaanite city. It didn't become Israelite until much later, when David captured it and made it his capital. And the Levite says to his servant, Oh no, we won't stop in Jebus for the night. Those people are Canaanites. In other words, we cannot count on being safe there. So they push on as far as the Israelite city of Gibeah. It's in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course they'll be safe there among fellow Israelites. But funnily enough, no one in Gibeah offers them a bed for the night until an old man who is not actually from Gibeah spots them and invites them into his house. They accept the offer and then verse 22 says, While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, 
pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The men of Gibeah had not offered hospitality to the Levite, but they had seen him. And now they want to gang rape him. And for us to grasp how utterly outrageous this is, we need to know that something very similar to this has happened before in Scripture. The book of Genesis describes an almost identical incident in the city of Sodom. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 19. And the result that time was that God utterly destroyed the city of Sodom for its wickedness. And for the rest of Scripture, Sodom and its sister city, Gomorrah, became shorthand for the worst kinds of wickedness. So here in Judges 19, it is utterly outrageous that Gibeah, an Israelite city, has become the new Sodom. That's how low things have gone. But there's more. Because as despicable as these men of Gibeah are, they are as anonymous as the dogs in the street. The focus here is on the Levite and to a lesser extent, the old man. They are the supposedly respectable characters here. So what do they do in this situation? Faced with a pack of angry rapists. What they do is, they open the door, they shove the woman out the door, like they're throwing a scrap of meat to the wolves, then they hunker down inside, while outside the woman is being raped all night long. The men of Gibeah wanted a man, but they're not picky. They'll make do with a woman. And as guilty and wicked as those men are, the Levite is no better. He sacrifices his wife to save himself. After all, if you're living according to what is right in your own eyes, that is what you do. Who's going to sacrifice themselves unless they're obeying some higher authority? When we're under pressure, saving our own skin is always going to seem right in our own eyes. It takes God to show us another way and lead us in that way. By the time we get to verse 27, the writer of Judges highlights the fact that this Levite is not a true husband to the woman. He's referred to now as her master. He abandoned her to be abused all night, then discarded at daybreak, dead on the doorstep. And verse 27 says, When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, 
get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. The callousness of this guy is almost beyond belief. It is shocking how unfazed and hard-hearted he is. But when he gets home, he decides he's going to be indignant about what has happened. He cuts the woman's body into 12 pieces and he sends a piece to each part of Israel. Why does he do this? Maybe he's embarrassed now by his own selfishness back in Gibeah. Maybe he's worried the details of what happened will get out and he'll be exposed as a heartless coward. We're not told what's going on in his head. But certainly he wants to make sure the spotlight stays on the man of Gibeah. And it does. Each tribe of Israel receives their grisly parcel in the post. And the Levite gets the reaction he was looking for. Chapter 20, verse 1, tells us all Israel came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. It is strange that after years of doing their best to be like the Canaanites, these people now get outraged when some Israelites behave like Canaanites. In any case, Israel is outraged. The Levite is given the platform at this national gathering. They hand him the mic and he tells his story, being very careful not to mention how the men of Gibeah got their hands on his concubine. He doesn't mention that he threw her out so they'd rape her instead of him. He gives a carefully edited version of what happened, Then he urges Israel to act, and they do. They unite against Gibeah. First, they call on the tribe of Benjamin to hand over the tribe of Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah is a city in Benjamite territory. Then when the Benjamites refuse to do that, it becomes a civil war. Eleven tribes against one. And the eleven tribes want to involve the Lord. Chapter 20, verse 18 says, they inquire of the Lord. But notice, they do not ask the Lord, what should we do? What is right in your eyes, Lord? No, they say to the Lord, this is what we're doing. Now, who of us should go first? And the Lord replies, Judah shall go first. The tragedy of this is that Judges chapter 1 began with Israel asking the Lord the exact same question. Who of us is to go up first? The answer was Judah that time as well. But the big difference was, in chapter 1, Judah was to lead Israel in battle against the Canaanites. To bring God's judgment on their wickedness and claim Israel's inheritance. This time, Judah is to lead Israel against Israel. Does the Lord approve of this action? As we read on, the text makes it clear that yes, he does. The men of Gibeah have done an outrageous thing. The tribe of Benjamin has done an outrageous thing in refusing to hand over the men of Gibeah. 
But in the end, this is imperfect justice. I say that because although Israel has given a token nod to the Lord here, they are still a nation committed to doing what is right in their own eyes. And so they are incapable of true justice. They come down on Benjamin like a ton of bricks, rightly. But the problem is the Levite, who's at least as guilty as the man of Gibeah, he goes unpunished. It is simply more convenient for Israel to demonize one tribe and batter them than to tackle the bigger problem, which is the rottenness of Israel as a whole. And what this chapter shows us is that human governments and systems of law can be more just or less just, but so long as the highest standard of humanity is what is right in our own eyes, there cannot be true justice. The Bible is happy to say that the Lord works through governments as he works through the 11 tribes of Israel here. But that doesn't mean everything governments do is right. And until humanity acknowledges and submits to the Lord, whatever justice there is in this world will only be relative, only partial. Human laws will move closer to justice or further away from it, but they will never arrive at it perfectly. True justice is only possible when men and women live according to what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Without that, even our best efforts will create as many problems as they solve. We see that here in chapter 21. An outrageous solution to a new problem. We know from the end of chapter 20, after the series of battles between Israel and the Benjamites, there are just 600 Benjamites left, all men and all hiding in the desert, at the rock of Rimon. But chapter 21, verse 1, gives us a new piece of information. If you have a look at that, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. This is referring back to the earlier assembly of Israel when they decided to go to war. Now we learn they also made this vow at that time. The Israelites have been intermarrying with the Canaanites throughout this whole book. But in a moment of self-righteousness against Benjamin, they vowed never to let the survivors of Benjamin marry other Israelites. But now they begin to realize what that means. The tribe of Benjamin will soon cease to exist. And having done their best to extinguish Benjamin, now the people of Israel get all patriotic. They regret their vow and they start crying about poor Benjamin. Then they try and find a loophole in their own vow. 
that will allow them to find wives for the 600 Benjamites. And what follows is as outrageous as the evil that roused them all to war in the first place. The 11 tribes discover that one Israelite city has not been represented at the big assembly. The city is Jabesh Gilead. And the Israelites decide because they didn't send anyone to the assembly, they are as guilty as the Benjamites. And it is therefore okay for women from Jabesh Gilead to be given to the Benjamites as wives. If that all sounds like a bit of a stretch, it is. But the Israelites don't care. They're scrambling to rescue the nation from the mess they've made. And the people of Jabesh Gilead are going to pay the price. There's going to be a second civil war to fix the problem caused by the first one. But in fact, this time it's just a slaughter, not a war. 12,000 troops march to Jabesh Gilead with instructions in verse 11 to kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. The troops carry out their orders and they come back with 400 virgins who are then presented to the Benjamites as wives. But there are 600 Benjamite men. So there's still 200 wives short. And no one can come up with another reason to destroy another Israelite city. So what are they going to do? How can they find another 200 women to save Benjamin? Well, if the previous plan was outrageous, the next one is equally so. There's an annual festival to the Lord coming up. Apparently, it involves lots of young women dancing. So the Benjamites are invited to hide in the bushes and then steal a dancing girl of their choice. And if we're maybe picturing this in our minds as a light-hearted country scene with merry maidens enjoying the excitement of it all, then we are picturing it wrong. In verse 21, the word seize is used elsewhere in the Bible of a lion pouncing on its prey to devour it. These girls are being abducted. It is not a merry scene at all. Of course, some of the girls' fathers and brothers might not like them being abducted, but the Israelites have an answer ready for them. If you look at verse 22, when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each, one, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At time the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. 
Apparently the fathers and brothers of the stolen girls know what's good for them. However they feel about what happened, they know they'll be safer if they just keep quiet and go on home. Here is a society less concerned with true justice than they are with the appearance of justice. Even when that appearance is paper thin and morally tied up in knots. So long as the Israelites can satisfy themselves that what they've done is right, so long as it is right in their own eyes, that's good enough for them. Never mind if their self-justification causes others to suffer injustice. Never mind if what they do is right in the eyes of the Lord. Israel doesn't think those things are important. The last verse of the book reminds us of that. Verse 25, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And isn't that a description of our society too? Now we might, of course, want to protest that the results here in the UK are not as bad as what we've just seen in Israel. And certainly people aren't slaughtering each other in the streets. But isn't it true that beneath the talk about justice and the veneer of political correctness in our society... A whole lot of injustice and unfairness goes on. And the ones who suffer most are the powerless and the vulnerable. Children in our society being encouraged to wonder if they're a boy in a girl's body or a girl in a boy's body and whether they should do something to change their body. Our news outlets recently got incensed about a nurse who killed 13 babies outside the womb. But they ignore the fact that between January and June of this year, 110,000 babies were legally killed in the womb in England and Wales. And while we as a nation have been wringing our hands about saving lives from coronavirus, the government decided to allow DIY abortions at home to make it easy to access abortion during the lockdowns. And while foreign travel is illegal during the lockdowns, it remains legal to travel abroad for assisted suicide. So do we value life or do we not? We make a big deal about progress for women in sport and in the workplace, while violence against women in their own homes is on the increase. And while the porn industry teaches young men new ways to degrade and dehumanize their girlfriends. It is an outrageous thing that so many teenage girls think it's normal 
to be slapped around and strangled by their boyfriends. If you don't believe me, look up the news reports on that. And now we have no-fault divorce, which allows abusers to get away with abuse because divorce is never anyone's fault anymore. I could go on and on with examples, and I am not even suggesting we live in the worst place. Relatively speaking, the UK is better than a whole lot of places. But isn't it true that underneath a civilized veneer, our society hides a lot of dark and disturbing things? Things that happen because everyone does as they see fit. The title of this series on Judges has been Deliver Us from Evil. And as we come to the end of the book, the message is that to be delivered from evil, we need God's King. We need to give up our determination to live according to what is right in our own eyes. The solution to our problem is to admit our foolishness and sin and submit willingly to King Jesus. Committing to live according to what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Otherwise, humanity will just keep recreating the same kind of mess over and over and over again. It's only under the reign of King Jesus that justice will roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's only by following Jesus that you and I begin to be truly just and righteous people and truly merciful, loving people because Jesus is not like the Levite in Judges 19. The Levite sacrificed his wife to save himself. Jesus did the opposite. We read earlier in Ephesians that he gave himself up for his bride, the church. He laid down his life so she could be holy and blameless. He gave himself for you as abused and disregarded as you might be by others. Jesus gave his life for you because he loves you with a love greater than any other love. So yes, Jesus is the king who will bring true justice to this earth. In the end, he will put every wrong right. And he's also the king who loves to welcome and forgive. He loves to welcome and forgive both sinful abusers and sinful sufferers who come to him in repentance. He can do that 
Because on the cross, he took the full weight of God's judgment against sin. One day, Jesus will bring full and perfect justice to this earth. And in the meantime, he offers mercy. When we come to him, he loves to assure us, your sin is paid for. The judgment you deserve fell on me. Thank God, as we finish the book of Judges, we don't end with hopelessness and darkness. We can look up from this mess caused by human sin. We can look instead to God's King. In Him, we find the way out of our darkness. Our last song is one you may not have heard before, but it reminds us Jesus, our King, is worthy of all honor and glory. So follow the words and join in with the words when you can. The song is called, Is He Worthy?
Thank you.